Listener Production. This conversation touches on disturbing content relating to the Port Arthur Massacre, the Black Saturday bushfires and the Bali bombings. Please listen with care. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. This week, another in-depth conversation about the intriguing world of forensic science. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're also fascinated by conversations from within the world of forensics and gaining an understanding of how science is helping to solve crime. Port Arthur really taught us that we cannot rely on visual identifications. People after that incident were very traumatised and we learnt during that process that someone coming in and saying that is my loved one, that is my son, daughter, is not something which we can rely on, that we need to ensure that it's backed up with science. Dr Jodie Leditschke is the Manager of Forensic Technical Services and Coronial Admission at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, which means, as you'll hear, she is responsible for the mortuary. She's also responsible for the management and storage of deceased in the context of mass fatalities, such as bombings and mass shootings. This often means setting up facilities in an extremely short amount of time and in hostile environments. To begin, let's go back to when Jodie first started out early in her career. I love science, but more than anything, I really liked anatomy. Again, maybe that sort of led me to where I am now. It's that whole interest in the body. And actually my first day, so my very first day in the mortuary, got shown around and I realised it was to do with deceased people or dead people. And I went home and I explained where to I was going to work and I thought, well, I'll just give it a go. Um, the first day I went in there, it was all very exciting but very overwhelming. Working in the mortuary, particularly in those days, you know, we had so much going on, so many cases, being autopsied at once. And the sights, the smell the sounds, everything. But I was still really interested. But the second day I walked in and I passed out. So at that point, um, I thought I'd leave. But I found out that they had a bet on how long I'd last. So I was one of the first science graduates. So before then, it was really trying to convince a lot of people to work in the mortuary, extremely experienced men. So I was one of the first straight out of uni, 21, science degree, really had no life experience. So they had a bet on how long I was going to last. When I heard how long it was, six weeks, I was determined to last those six weeks. So what actually triggered your faint? I think it was just the overwhelming nature. So the first of all, it was really interesting. I think the overwhelming uh, smell of um, the dissections that were going on, and it's a bit different from at university when they're preserved. The people that we work in, on in a mortuary have only recently died. So it was just that overwhelming smell. Also just the images. And it's not something that I describe often to people. And people don't need to know that full image of what's going on in a busy mortuary in a full day. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was in disasters, barley bombings, the 
Black Friday fires, floods, in terms of getting a mobile team to go to those places and to set up a temporary or a mobile mortuary. Is that one of your roles? It is. Um, one of the areas which over the years of working at the VIFM, VIFM, is developing an expertise in mortuary management and particularly in developing expertise in how to set up a mortuary in disaster situations. We're really fortunate in Victoria that we haven't had major ones. Obviously, the bushfires was something which was needed that skill. One of my first experiences was probably that one of the absolutes still stands out as one of the most confronting experiences that I've ever, ever had to deal with in my career, and that was Port Arthur Massacre after um, the shootings down there, down in Port Arthur. At the time, I was a technician at the time, an assistant in the mortuary, and we got called down to there. And it's the first time I realised um, to identify these people in a mass disaster, how organised everyone has to be, but at the same sense as what a sense of team. So it involves a lot of things. It involves arranging logistics, arranging storage. And Port Arthur was the first experience Australia had in such a mass fatality, but it made us realise that no one state can actually do it, that uh, it needs to be a team right around Australia and the expertise needs to be around there. Because we have listeners overseas, could you just explain what Port Arthur was and the significance of Port Arthur to Australia? Yeah, Port Arthur is a location down in Tasmania, which is a penal settlement, a convict settlement on a um, small peninsula. And it's a very major tourist destination for many people that come from overseas. And unfortunately, one day back in 1996, a shooter went down there and shot multiple people. Um, and there were lots of injuries. And unfortunately, 35 people died and many of those people died also in a cafe um, while they were sitting eating, uh, having their breaks. And for Australia, it was the first time that we were really exposed to that multiple fatality situation. And it Tasmania is only a small location, and it needed assistance from other states. And we were called um, from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine to go down there and sit, assist the forensic pathologist down there. Uh, with the examinations and uh, helping with the identifications. So it was the first time which I think mobilised a number of experts from around Australia to assist. So there was people from New South Wales, people from Victoria, and obviously a huge number of people from Tasmania itself working together. And after that, we realised as Australia that we really needed a plan to be written and developed. One was in place. Uh, and one of the things which I've assisted in is writing a plan for setting up of temporary mortuaries, mainly for Victoria, but I also speak to many of my people right around Australia to develop those plans as well. So how do you set up, you've had a disaster, for example, either a bombing or a mass shooting, which hopefully won't happen in Australia again, but you have to set up a mortuary how do you do that from scratch? And what do you need to consider in a mortuary? So Port Arthur, the Bali bombing, other experiences that I've experienced 
over the years all came together the night of the Victorian bushfires and the plan. When and a disaster happens, every disaster is different. But the first thing which we think of and the first thing what I need to think of or as a mortuary manager or any person needs to think of is ensuring that these people that have died at a scene and the police are gathering those people, collecting the information, get placed into respective storage as quickly as possible. So the moment something happens and I hear on the media or something, my mind immediately clicks over to, right, we need to start setting up a mortuary. And in Victoria, if anything happened greater than, say, 100 people, hopefully that will never, ever happen. But we need a plan. We need to ensure that we do it quickly. And the first thing that we start to think of is about where we can put them, where we can do the examination, what resources we need. So first off, we start to get either refrigeration in and then we cover it and we ensure that refrigeration is safe to store depending on how many people have died. And what sort of refrigeration would you be talking about with, for example, 100 people? Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine is lucky. We do have some room at any one, in one point, and that room depends on who's died the last week. So in the Victorian bushfires, we had a heat wave the week before, so we had no room. So in that case, we knew we need storage containers and in a disaster, when we first get information in, we don't know how many. So the numbers that I were being told in those first few hours, well, actually the early hours of the morning, because during the night I was originally only told 40. And then that next morning it ranged from 70 to 3,000. It was just jumping all over the place. And regardless of those numbers, we knew the first thing we started with storage containers and we do use refrigerated containers at this point. And then we cover them in tentage and we ensure that they uh, have got places for racks. In other countries, some may have mortuaries where they get delivered and they get built just like that. In Australia, we don't have that. What we do have, though, is in Victoria, we have a good list of contacts. So I've got a spreadsheet and that spreadsheet has the refrigerated container mobile phone number that I can call. We have a event company that we may be able to call. We have plumbers, we have electricians, we have carpenters. We have people that will bring plants. We have people that will bring chairs, tables. Um, we have companies that will bring plastic coverings, labels, a whole list of people that suddenly comes into play and have different roles. We also have other people that manage the volunteers that call in that want to help. We have people that will manage the experts from around Australia who want to come in and help that do their accommodation, their flights. Everything we do has to be activated and ready to be in working order, usually within 24 hours, if not less, depending on that disaster. It's a lot of phone calls. It's in a lot of teamwork. We work with different countries. When we get caught out to assist, I work with um, the Australian Federal Police, under their, often under their banner, and one of the examples is with the Bali bombing. Um, we get called to assist again, to work in the mortuary and work as a team, and my role is to support the forensic pathologist, so my role often is um, ensuring that the multiple, multiple bodies that come in through the door, they get transferred to us, are then labelled, 
unfortunately, they may not always be complete. They may be traumatised, but they're all correctly labelled. They're registered. They're provided to doctors and for assistants and fingerprint people and uh, dentists or to examine, gather all that information during that mortuary phase. Then once all that information and all those samples are taken, so DNA now, we rely a lot on DNA and other specimens are taken, toxicology, any of those, then those people are placed in respectful storage and storage containers and to await for their identification and then eventually we get the identification and then we release. That's the sort of workflow from a mortuary in a very quick uh, way. You mentioned that there was a plan in place for Port Arthur, but then you've been working on a plan since then. What do you think Port Arthur taught us and taught forensic experts and organisers that we didn't know back in 1996? I think that really taught us about having to have good communication right, using the experience right around Australia. So the plan beforehand, it was really from Australia's point of view, probably on paper. I'll talk mainly about the mortuary phase because there are different phases, huge police phases and investigative phases, which aren't my area of expertise. But the plan for the mortuary phase was really dot point guidelines and we really hadn't put it in practice. Port Arthur really taught us that we cannot rely on visual identifications. People after that incident were very traumatised and we learnt during that process that someone coming in and saying that is my loved one, that is my son, daughter, is not something which we can rely on, that we need to ensure that it's backed up with science. So what that changed from a mortuary management point of view is that you can't just have one thing to say this is this person in a mass fatality event or in any event actually. So that what it taught us is that we have to rely on fingerprints. Dental at that time was very important, descriptions, and then support sometimes, sometimes when we do have that person viewing a deceased person. Uh, but that science background is really important, ensuring that it's systematic as well. So it's not just a matter of, if you see in the movies sometimes pulling out someone out of a drawer, you know, saying, is this him? You know, it's not simple in a mass fatality or in any identification. You actually need a whole variety of teams gathering together to say, okay, this person's come in and said this is him, but the person that's walked in that door, and we often see it, is really, really traumatised. So if you've got a mother coming in and that person's just been told that their son has died, they walk in and they look at that person and they may not even want to, and they may just glance and say, yes, that's him. As scientists and as a team of people working in this area, we need to ensure that they're backed up with good circumstances, with possibly DNA, with possibly fingerprints, with dentals, so we can support. And what that does from a mortuary management point of view is means that we have so many different other um, tools and different experts involved that come together to form that identification. In the same sense, we have to ensure that it's timely so we've got this one part of a mass fatality happens and we've got the other part where it will take a long time to identify people. And we've seen that over the overseas, you know, with the um, Asian tsunami, 
Um, it takes a long time, but we've also got an expectation that we need to get these people to their families as quickly as possible. So how do you actually set up an on-site mortuary and have it satisfy occupational health and safety for the people working in it, particularly if there are dangers like fires or you're in an area like Bali, for example, where there was concern about more bombs? What do you need to set up that mortuary so the experts can do their identifying? As I said, every single disaster is different and If you work in another country, you've still got the health and safety that you need to follow. Um, What I have learned of working in disaster is I concentrate on my area of expertise and I've got this massive area of support, people surrounding me. So in regards to the Bali bombing, my area was literally inside the four walls of the mortuary and I had these other teams that were um, guiding the security, guiding where our induction regarding our safety outside those four walls. Within the mortuary was my area, but in the same sense, we're working in another country and we're working with extremely limited resources. And it was a matter of working with what you've got. So you come down to what's really important and with whatever resources you've got to do the best job within that area. And so overseas, it's really about respect for the dead, ensuring your labelling's correct. In Bali, we didn't have too much running water. We didn't have any cooling. We didn't have uh, non-slip flooring. Because ideally you would have things like the means to dispose and retain organ material and tissue. For example, you still have to maintain a chain of custody if you're doing legal cases. Changing room and showers and washing facilities. So if you've got somewhere with minimal flowing water, how do you cope? Yeah, so change rooms are another thing, and it's it's amazing what um, people can build very short in very short space of time. So change rooms can be installed very quickly. If you don't have running water, we can actually work without running water. It's not ideal. We can work with disinfectants to ensure that your hands are disinfected, that you are unprotected. So one of the big things with setting up a mortuary is what we call defining a a clean area and a dirty area. So when we set up a mortuary, we really, really quickly define it. And it may just be tape on the ground, depending on which mortuary we're working at and which country we're working in. But there may be foot baths as you step in and out of that area. It's not only for ensuring that you have an affection control and that you ensure that examining a deceased person is one area and that you don't transfer any of the infection anywhere else. But it's also when you step over into that mortuary or step over into that dirty area where you're working, you do become a different person and you should be because you're in an area where you actually have to really pay attention to what you're doing. You have to ensure that every sample that you take is clearly marked, is labelled, and those labels are there. As you said, Kathy, is the chain of custody. So all those samples are taken. And you have to concentrate. And this is usually at a time where you've worked, again, long hours and fatigue is setting in and you've got so many people around you asking you to do so many different things. And I often talk to 
overseas countries, many countries, and sometimes do workshops, sometimes teach about setting up a mortuary in really low, no resources. They have nothing, no resources. We talk about going to a hardware shop or a camping shop and getting rubber matting that can be washed down and can be non-slip. We talk about the importance of tenting. We talk about tables. Uh, we talk about using labels, whatever you can find, that are hardy. Uh, using resources with whatever you've got, just following the basic guidelines, and that is, once again, you know, making sure that bodies are covered, that they're labelled securely, that your staff are as safe as possible. So gloves, cut-proof eyewear. Um, you can imagine protective eyewear, face masks, what you require. Having all those whole list of things, and we've got lists which you can put together to build that mortuary and to make sure that's available for your staff. So all those things come into play. And again, it's then a matter of um, briefing your staff before, like any operation, briefing your staff, briefing everyone, making sure they're aware, taking their time, making their breaks. One of the big things, the most important things, and it sounds a bit strange from any mortuary that you set up, one of the most important things is catering for the staff because that's the time where it makes everyone to have a break, makes them sit down, makes them have good food, makes them debrief psychologically, talk to each other. In a disaster is the adrenaline kicks in and everyone wants to work and they want to help. This includes everyone that's building everything for you. Um, so one of the things I always um, talk about is how important is having a tent that's set aside and that's another part of setting up a mortuary for breakouts for staff to go and eat and good food. If I can remember anything about Port Arthur, one of the big things I remember is the scones and jam and cream. They were so good. Whoever was down there making those was just so fantastic. How about medical imaging in terms of how do you, on earth do you get medical imaging to a remote place? And by that means scans, x-rays, CT scanners, whatever you require in your identification as well. How does that work? So med medical imaging, CT scanning has just changed the whole way we look at all our forensic medical examinations and you may have already heard about that already in these podcasts but it is particularly changing the way in the modern uh, mortuary that we need to look at the way we manage disasters and going forward so at VIFM Victoria Institute of Forensic Medicine we have a CT scan so when a person dies it immediately comes in and they go through the CT scanner so we have this virtual image of a person. You could imagine in a disaster when you have hundreds, hopefully never thousands, but it could be, that if a person comes in and has to be physically examined every one of those persons, that the resources it takes in the mortuary and just examining those. But now we do have the CT scan and the information that can provide in a disaster is so useful. So in the Victorian bushfires, it just became instrumental in what we did. So we have to have a CT and it has to be used as quickly as possible. So that's okay if we have a disaster around our area and our mortuary is up and running. So we will admit everyone, we'll CT scan and then set up all the um, tentage and the storage areas around our institute. But if we don't have that, we need to think about where we would get a CT scan if we can't do it in our local area. In somewhere like Bali, do you just have to make do if you can't access 
a mobile imaging. Yeah, don't forget Bali was back in 2002 and it wasn't a time when we had any imaging at all. That would have changed the way we would have handled it at that point. But in saying that, you know, we have really good forensic odontologists, dentists, and they bring mobile x-ray machines and that the dental work is, and the description in dental work in those situations for identifications works so well if people have had good dental work done. So we do use that in x-raying, but no, we didn't have that at the time and it was reliant on our forensic pathologist doing detailed examinations, details and describing them to the best of their ability. And keeping up the paperwork at the same time. Yeah, keeping up paperwork and making sure that was that's also another role with the uh, mortuary management, which is something so important and it sounds so boring to so many people, but quality management, quality checks. And the moment I say that, everyone's eyes just glaze over. You know, no one thinks about the, how important the quality is. Everyone thinks about the excitement of forensic science and finding that fibre. But our quality check people who check that paperwork is so important. So the doctors and the writers will be doing cases and they'll be tired and they'll be writing things down. And in one of the disasters I w- we worked in, there was a real confusion between one and seven Some people write one in a different way to seven. So we had to put up on the wall how to write numbers because we were doing pen and paper. And this is how one to 10 should be written. And a seven is not, a one is not written with a cross through it looking like a a seven. It seems so simple, but you have to actually go back to basics to make sure everybody's using the same language, whether it's numerically or um, in the written form. Yeah, and don't forget, if we don't get that right, so if we don't get that numbering system right, then all those specialists who are doing all the examinations, gathering all that information, then at the last point, a judge, a coroner, a person will say, this number, number seven, is Joe Blow, this person. And then the mortuary member or someone has to walk into that mortuary and grab number seven and put the name against it. So if that number seven's written wrong or that number is wrong, then all that work doesn't work, it hasn't put the wrong name to the wrong body. In terms of the disasters that you've attended, is there anything that particularly stands out that has touched you or stayed with you more than other experiences? Um, I think there's two. I don't think I'll ever forget um, uh, walking into the uh, brought our cafe down at Port Arthur. That's an image, you know, but way, way, way back, you know, there's something that I will never, ever forget that moment. And I think it did set also my story for the rest of my life. So that won't change. But, and again, without saying which disaster's worse, every single disaster has been dreadful for so many people. Um, the Victorian bushfires in your own community and having the smell and having to go home, work with your family. Everyone's known someone that's affected by that and also do work in that disaster at the same time for so long. Again, uh, gathering all that experience, I was able to assist and I was able to help the community, I believe, and really a purpose in getting people back to their loved one or having assisting in some way really, um, really was a very rewarding experience. But you don't forget it. You don't forget the smell of the smoke going home and having to work in that environment. So, yeah, those two things definitely stand out. Well, thank you so much, 
Jodie, for joining us today. I think the challenges you face are incredible and the work that you do under extremely difficult circumstances are just inspiring and reassuring for us that if someone we love know or we are involved in a disaster, that there are actually people who really bring humanity to the situation and thoroughness as well in looking after us and our loved ones. So I, for one, am very grateful. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Cathy, for having me. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. <laughs>